Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National, Friday the 28th of October 2022. From the politics section, sad day for Northern Ireland as it faces another election. Report by Craig Meehan. It's a sad day for the people of Northern Ireland as they face another election which will solve and do nothing, a former Taoiseach has said. Bertha Ahern, an architect of the Good Friday Agreement, said the ballot will not change a damn thing. He made the comments as the election appeared to be called by Northern Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton Harris on Friday after a deadline to restore devolved government at Stormont passed. Ahern said that Heaton Harris talked himself into the election in recent weeks after stating he has a legal obligation. I think it's a pity. I think it's a sad day and feel sorry for the people in the North because this won't decide what's in the Northern Ireland Protocol, Ahern said. The only thing that would decide the protocol are the negotiations that are necessary. The DUP is blocking the restoration of power sharing as part of its protest against the post-Brexit Northern Ireland Protocol. A six-month legislative timeframe to form an administration expired in the early hours of Friday. Talks between Brussels and London to resolve the outstanding issues were ongoing. However, Ahern believes there are no negotiations taking place between both sides. The last meetings of substance were last October. There was a bit of a meeting for half a day in February, he told RTUs Today with Clear Burn programme. Talks started last week but no negotiations. There's a big difference between talks and discussions and negotiations and now they've thrown the North into an election. It doesn't matter whether people vote black, white, yellow or pink in the election. It won't change anything. The protocol is still the protocol and it isn't up for discussion in the election. I heard said the UK government needs to learn a bit more about the DUP and its stance on the Northern Ireland Protocol, stating that the party will not change its position until there is a solution. He said that people in Northern Ireland now face an election that solves nothing and does nothing. The main issue that's causing the breakdown is not even on the agenda, so if they all voted 100% one way or the other, it doesn't change a damn thing, I heard added. I think what happens now is the election will be on the 15th. There'll be all the ranking in between. Hopefully it's a peaceful election. Hopefully people use a democratic vote for whatever individuals they like. On the other side of that, they'll have a Christmas break and then maybe the British government might consider doing what they should have done a few years ago and get into serious negotiations, not discussions, and try to find a way forward. Ahern said he's also concerned the British government will use the Northern Ireland as a bargaining chip in the protocol negotiations. He added, We know the problems, they've been rehearsed time and time again, but the British government can say what they like, but the reality is there hasn't been any negotiations for a full 12 months. It was just coming up to Halloween last year, was the last meeting of substance, and with all the musical cheers that have been going on in Westminster, people in Northern Ireland have been left. I hope they notice that. I do hope people in Northern Ireland see that in number 10 they are low on their priority. The sequence of events which led to the collapse of the devolved government in Stormont. 
The stalemate between the political parties in Northern Ireland, which has caused the latest collapse of the Vogue government, can be traced back to the Brexit withdrawal agreement in January 2020. The agreement cementing the UK's exit from the European Union came just weeks after the New Decade New Approach Accord, which resurrected Stormont following a three-year collapse. January 24, 2020 The 2016 vote by the UK to leave the EU was formalised after several years of negotiation during which Northern Ireland and its border with the Republic of Ireland turned into one of the trickiest issues. How to manage the UK's only land border with the EU was hoped to be resolved with the Northern Ireland Protocol which, instead, placed checks in the Irish Sea. December 31st, 2020 The Brexit transition period between the UK and the EU ended at 11pm, which saw the start of the implementation of the Protocol, albeit with a number of grace periods. February 1st, 2021 Hostility towards port staff from Loyalists who opposed the sea border separating Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom prompted Stormont's Department of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs, DERA, to halt checks on animal-based foodstuffs at Belfast and Larne ports. DERA said the pause was necessary to protect the welfare of its employees after a graffiti appeared in the area describing the port officers as targets. February 21st, 2021 Unionist leaders launched High Court Challenge to the Northern Ireland Protocol. February 26, 2021 Stormont Agriculture Minister Gordon Lyons, DUP, orders officials to halt construction of permanent inspection facilities for post-Brexit checks on agri-foods, goods, arriving from Great Britain. Sinn Féin Deputy First Minister Michelle O'Neill brings the move a stunt. April 28, 2021 DU leader, DUP leader and First Minister Arlene Foster is ousted over discontent with the party's Brexit strategy. The party rank and file lay some of the blame for the emergence of an Irish sea border at her door. June 30th, 2021, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson takes over at the DUP helm. He vowed to right the wrong that has been done by the imposition of the Northern Ireland Protocol and to restore Northern Ireland's place fully within the UK internal market. September 9th, 2021, Sir Geoffrey announces his party will no longer engage with North-South political structures established under the 1998 Good Friday Agreement as part of their campaign against the Protocol. February 3rd, 2022 DUP withdrew Minister Paul Garvin from the Stormont Executive in a process move to force the UK to act on their concerns over the Protocol. March 30th to April 5th, 2021 Rioting in areas across Northern Ireland is blamed on tensions caused by the loyal opposition to the Protocol. May 25th, 2021 A delegation from the DUP tell UK's lead Brexit negotiator, Lord Frost, the Northern Ireland Protocol must be scrapped. Sir Geoffrey said, Our message was clear and unambiguous, the Protocol must go and the government should take further unilateral action to restore our province's full and unfettered access to the United Kingdom internal market. June 5th, 2021 Hundreds of people turn out for the first in a series of anti-Protocol rallies which took place in Portadown. November 3rd, 2021 A rally against the protocol on the Loyalist Shankill Road is followed by serious rioting in the nearby police line. Rallies against the protocol, many addressed by Sir Jeff Donaldson and TUV leader Jim, Jim Allister, continue at locations across Northern Ireland in the lead-up to an Assembly election. May 2022 Assembly election results see Sinn Féin overtake the DUP to become the biggest party at Stormont. 
May 30th, 2022. Assembly sits following a recall peti- petition, but an attempt to elect a speaker to allow business to proceed failed after the DUP re- refused to support it. June 13, 2022. The Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, designed to effectively override sections of the deal as introduced in Parliament. August the 3rd. Another recall for the Assembly sees DUP again refused to support any nominations for a new speaker. October 18, 2022. Northern Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris confirms he will call a fresh Assembly election as required by law if a new executive has not been formed by October the 28th deadline. October 27, 2022. A final recall of the Assembly to attempt to elect a speaker fails just hours before the deadline to form an executive or face an election. Sinn Féin blamed the impasse on the DUP's refusal to nominate ministers to a new executive, while the DUP said UK government could have introduced legislation to delay an election for action in the protocol. Sir Geoffrey said turbulence at Westminster, including the resignations of Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss's Prime Minister in recent months, means the government would be within its rights to secure more time to sort out the protocol. And that was a piece by Craig Meehan. From The National... Friday the 28th of October 2022, from the news section, One person hospitalised after early morning fire in Aberdeen, report by Ross Hunter. One person was taken to hospital with several others treated for smoke inhalation, following a fire at a block of flats in Aberdeen in the early hours of Friday morning. Scottish Fire and Rescue received calls just after midnight to reports of the blaze at the Cloverleaf Grange in the Bucksburn area of the city. The flat was on the first floor of a four-storey building and three fire engines attended the scene. Several ambulances also responded, including a rapid resuscitation response unit. One person was taken to the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, while several others were treated for smoke inhalation. A Scottish Ambulance Service spokesperson said, We received a call at 12.03am on Friday, October 28th to attend an incident at Clover- Cloverleaf Grange, Aberdeen. Three ambulances, two of our special operation response teams, SORT, and a rapid resuscitation response unit, 3RU, were dispatched to the scene. Several patients were treated at the scene and one patient was conveyed to Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. A spokesperson for the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service said, We were alerted at 12.01am on Friday, 20th of October, to reports of a dwelling fire at Cloverleaf Grange, Aberdeen. Operations Control mobilised three fire appliances to a fire affecting a flat in the first floor of a four-storey building. Four casualties were placed into the care of the Scottish Ambulance Service. Crews left the scene after ensuring the area was made safe. And that report was by Ross Hunter. From the National, Friday the 28th of October 2022, from the Politics section, exclusive SNP refused to say whether gender recognition reform rebel MSPs will lose party whip by Hamish Morrison, political reporter. The SNP have refused to confirm whether they will take action against rebel MSPs who defied the party whip in a vote on gender recognition reform. Nine MSPs from the party voted against or abstained in Wednesday's vote, thought to be the SNP's biggest ever rebellion in their 15 years in government. Among them was Ash Reagan, the former Minister for Community Safety, who resigned from the government just hours before the vote, which saw the legislation pass as, as its first stage, because she said her conscience would not allow her to back the legislation. 
The SNP have so far refused to confirm whether rebel MSPs will lose the whip or face action for their defiance. A spokesperson said, As is normal practice, SNP MSPs are expected to support government legislation. They refused to be drawn further on whether the MSPs would face expulsion from the party, which would take the SNP down to 55 members and leave them more reliant on Green support to push through the legislation. Soft touch accusations. The rebellion and apparent lack of consequences for those involved has led to accusations the party's chief whip, George Adam, who is responsible for ensuring party discipline, is failing to run a tight ship when it comes to the controversial issue of reforming gender recognition law. Adam was approached for comment. Ellie Gomersall, president of the National Union of Students and a Scottish Greens activist, called on the party to grow a backbone on the issue and said SNP rebels defied the party, safe in the knowledge they would get away with it. She added, I think the SNP should reflect a little on why this has happened, because I think the SNP have, for many, many years, shown to be a soft touch when it comes to their members who speak out particularly against the party's own commitment and trans issues. Those seven MSPs who did vote against did so knowing that exactly that, that they could get away with it because the SNP never take action on members when they speak up against the advancement of trans rights. Who are the GRA rebels? Reagan was joined by Stephanie Callahan, Fergus Ewing, Kenneth Gibson, Ruth McGuire, John Mason and Michelle Thompson in voting against the legislation in defiance of the party's official stance. Thompson has confirmed she has not heard from the Whip's office. SNP MSPs Annabel Ewing and Jim Farley did not vote, also against the party whip, which required members to support the government. The Gender Recognition Reform Bill aims to make it easier for transgender people to change their sex on official documents, such as a birth certificate, to match the gender with which they identify. Critics claim it will make it easier for predatory men to access single-sex spaces, but supporters say the current process to obtain a Gender Recognition Certificate, GRC, is distressing for trans people. Currently, trans people must obtain a medical diagnosis of gender dysphoria, emotional distress caused by experiencing life in a body which is not aligned with a person's gender identity, or prove to officials they have lived in what's called their acquired gender for at least two years. The National has approached the nine rebel MSPs for comment, and that report was by Hamish Morrison. From the National, Friday the 28th of October 2022, from the news section, Young Scots chant F asterisk 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 the Tories as they march through Glasgow in climate protest by Abby Garton Crosby. Young people marched through Glasgow chanting F asterisk 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 the Tories and slamming rich list PM Rishi Sunak as they marked a year since the first anniversary of the COP26 summit in the city. The demonstrators took aim at the UK government and chanted, Rishi is a billionaire, people die he doesn't care, just as long as he's got petrol for his super yacht. Sunak and his wife appeared on the Sunday Times Rich List this year with a combined net worth of around £730 million. Activists staged a climate strike in the city to highlight the failure of last year's COP26 event. The demonstration, organised by Fridays for Future Scotland, saw participants march through the city centre from Kelvin Way to George Square, mirroring the root of last year's huge protest. Adam Ballard, 16, one of the organisers behind Friday's demonstration, said, The climate crisis and the cost of living crisis have the same root, the refusal to move away from the fossil fuels. There is no oil shortage. There is a corrupt system that prioritises profit over people. 
While ordinary people were forced to choose between heating and eating, the people in power and fossil fuel chief executives continued to make unimaginable profits. The protest came as it emerged that Sunak would not be attending the COP27 summit in Egypt next month, despite the UK hosting the International Climate Conference last year. On Friday, Sunak denied his absence at COP27 as a failure of leadership, arguing it is right for him to focus on the economic challenges at home. He said he is really proud of the UK's record in tackling climate change, particularly with regard to COP, citing the summit in Glasgow last year. Put to him that Labour has said his non-attendance in Egypt is a massive failure of leadership. He said, no, the leadership that we have shown in the climate is unmatched, almost along the world. Speaking during a visit to a hospital in South London, he added, It's important to me that, as a Prime Minister, we leave behind an environment that is better for our children and grandchildren. I'm very passionate about that. I'm very personally committed to it. I just think, at the moment, it's right that I'm also focusing on the depressing domestic challenges we have with the economy. I think that's what people watching would reasonably expect me to be doing, as well. The goal of COP26 was to prevent the average global temperature rising from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, compared with the levels before the Industrial Revolution. Reports say this is the threshold beyond which some scientists have said the dangers of global warming grow. UN Climate Chief Simon Steele warned that while there has been some progress this year, countries were still nowhere near the scale and pace of emissions reductions needed to limit temperature rises to 1.5 Celsius over this century. And that article is by Abby Garton Crosby. This is from The National on Monday 31st of October 2022 from the news section. Estimated cost of national care service significantly understated, says Audit Scotland. This article is by Steph Braun. Estimated costs around the National Care Service Bill are likely to significantly understate the actual cost which could face the Scottish Government, Audit Scotland has said. The independent body will give evidence on the financial memorandum of the bill on Tuesday, but has already raised a number of concerns in a written submission to the Finance and Public Administration Committee. Last week, SNP MSPs on the committee tore into government officials as they criticised a lack of clarity within the document. Convener Kenneth Gibson said the policy seemed like a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Meanwhile, the SNP's Michelle Thompson said she was surprised by the complete lack of fundamentals in the financial memorandum and insisted she had no confidence in its accuracy. The bill would centralise £4.3 billion of public spending, one-third of Scottish Council's total budget, and will aim to improve the consistency and quality of social care services. A table within the financial memorandum shows wide-ranging estimates for the cost of bill provisions. It states in 2022-2023, to the total estimated cost of bill provisions could be anything between £24 million and £36 million, and there are even larger gaps projected for the following years. Audit Scotland has said there are a number of costs associated with measures in the bill that are yet to be assessed, and has insisted the overall cost of measures will be significantly above the amounts currently assessed. The written submission says, there are a number of costs associated with the measures set out in the bill that have yet to be assessed. The Scottish Government has recognised this, providing a broad description of the anticipated cost and the difficulty in assessing it at this stage. In some of these 
The potential for additional costs is significant and taken together, it is likely that the overall cost of the measures will be significantly above the amounts currently assessed. In our view, the potential cost summarised are likely to significantly understate the margin of uncertainty and range of potential costs of the bill measures. Legislation to establish an NCS was published earlier this year, but Ministers have stressed it is only a framework. Audit Scotland has suggested the estimated costs do not thoroughly take into account changes and increasing volatility of inflation expectations and has laid out a number of areas where costs have not yet been assessed, which it says have the potential to add significantly to the overall costs reported and are not currently reflected in the assessed margin of uncertainty. The submission added the inflation indices applied by the Scottish Government are set out in the last bullet of paragraph 30 in the financial memorandum. These are taken from the Office for National Statistics publications, but more recent information on actual forecast inflation are well ahead of the assumptions used. There is significant uncertainty about the future path of overall inflation measures and how this translates to public sector pay and other costs, but in our view, the margin of uncertainty in the figures is likely to be significantly understated as a result. Areas where costs have not been assessed include the cost of any national care boards, transition costs for local authorities and health boards, the impact of changes to VAT treatment, the impact of any change to pension scheme arrangements and the extent of potential changes to capital investment and maintenance costs. Donna Bell, Director of Social Care and National Care Service Development, denied there were any issues with the way the bill had been developed when speaking to the committee last week and said risks were taken into account. The article was by Steph Braun. This is from The National on Monday 31st of October 2022. This is from the news section. Fury over Manston Immigration Centre as women and kids sleep on mats on the floors of tents. This article is by Laura Webster. The Home Secretary is facing questions over the wholly unacceptable conditions at an immigration centre in Kent, with one Tory MP describing the situation there as a breach of humane conditions. Roger Gale has submitted an urgent question about overcrowding at the Manson site, suggesting the conditions may have been allowed to develop deliberately. It comes amid concerns over the conditions of sites where migrants await processing after one in Dover was firebombed on Sunday. According to Gale, there are now more than 4,000 people at the facility, despite it being designed for just 1,600 people at a time. Speaking to BBC Radio 4's Today programme, he said, There are simply far too many people and this situation should never have been allowed to develop and I'm not sure that it hasn't almost been developed deliberately. The Home Office is struggling to find hotel accommodation, he said, adding that he now understands that this is a policy issue and a decision was taken not to book additional hotel space. That's like driving a car down a motorway, seeing the motorway clear ahead, then there's a car crash, and then suddenly there's a five-mile tailback. The car crash was a decision not to book more hotel space, he said. People should only be held at the facility for 24 hours while undergoing checks before being moved into detention centres of asylum accommodation. But the Independence Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration, David Neal, said last week that he had spoken to a family from Afghanistan who had been living in a marquee there for a month. Other families from Iraq and Syria had been sleeping on mats on the floor 
with blankets for weeks. Neil said there was four cases of diphtheria confirmed during a site visit on October 24th. On Sunday night, former prisons inspector and parole board chair Nick Hardwick tweeted declaring the conditions at Manston a national disgrace. He went on, 100 illegally detained on the whim of a politician, women and children, including from Iran, sleeping on mats on the floors of tents for weeks as winter approaches. Diseases of the past at rife, and now firebombs, appalling. However, speaking to GB News on Monday, Food Minister Mark Spencer said the accommodation is quite reasonable. We're talking about people who have been exploited, who've literally had their life savings taken off them, put on an unseaworthy craft and pushed across the channel by unscrupulous people who are exploiting them, he said. We have a responsibility to look after them, to process them quickly and to work out who's genuine asylum seeker and who should be returned to a safe country. The article was by Laura Webster. This is from The National on Monday the 31st of October 2022. This is from the news section. Just stop oil protesters throw paint over UK government buildings and the Sun HQ. This article is by Laura Webster. Protesters have sprayed orange paint on buildings in central London, demanding that the government halts all new oil and gas licences and consents. Just stop Oil said its supporters sprayed paint from fire extinguishers on the Home Office, the MI5 building, the Bank of England and the headquarters of News Corp at London Bridge on Monday morning. The group said the buildings were chosen to represent the pillars that support and maintain the power of the fossil fuel economy. Scotland Yard said protesters threw paint at a number of locations, naming Marsham Street, Millbank, London Bridge and Threadneedle Street. Officers responded quickly to all incidents and a number of people have now been arrested on suspicion of criminal damage, the force tweeted. City of London Police said two people were arrested outside the Bank of England. A Just Stop Oil spokesperson said, We are not prepared to stand by and watch while everything we love is destroyed, while vulnerable people go hungry and fossil fuel companies and the rich profit from our misery. The era of fossil fuel should long be gone but the creeping tentacles of fossil fuel interests continue to corrupt our politics, government and the media, as they have for decades. How else do you explain a government ignoring sensible no-brainer policies like renewables, insulation and public transport, which would cut our energy bills and our carbon emissions in favour of corrupt schemes to drill for uneconomic oil and gas at taxpayers' expense? Well, we're done with begging. We are acting to stop new oil and gas because it is the right thing to do. As citizens, as parents, we have every right under British law to protect ourselves and those we love. That article was by Laura Webster. This is from The National on Monday 31st of October 2022. This is from the news section. Scotland's scathing views on UK government revealed in major new poll. This article is by Jane McLeod. Two-thirds of Scots trust the Holyrood government to work in the country's best interests, while just 22% who say the same about Westminster. That's according to the latest annual Scottish Social Attitudes survey, which polled 1,043 people across Scotland between last October and March this year. The ongoing survey project found huge disparities in views towards the Scottish and UK governments, with far more Scots feeling positive towards Holyrood 
and its policies. Some 48% of Scots are more likely to trust the Scottish Government to make fair decisions, while just 15% feel this way about its counterpart in London. The majority of 58% feel the Scottish Government is good at listening to the public before making decisions, while just 18% think this about the UK Government. Meanwhile, a whopping 75% of people said Holyrood should have the most influence over how Scotland is run, compared to just 14% who want Westminster to have more say. Constitution Secretary Angus Robertson said the findings demonstrate continued faith in the Scottish Government. They clearly show that despite these uncertain times, people agree with the Scottish Government's priorities to build a fairer, greener, wealthier Scotland, he went on. Given the clear democratic mandate we have, not to mention the continued trust the public has in the Scottish Government to act in their interest, we will work to ensure people have a choice on independence, ensuring that choice is an informed one. The study also revealed people's attitudes towards taxation. While Scottish Tories were calling for the now scrapped money budget to be replaced north of the border, providing big tax cuts, a massive 64% of Scots would like to see the level of tax and spending on key public services increased. People were asked about the economic situation in Scotland too. With a cost of living crisis and rocketing inflation, most people believed the economy was weaker than it was 12 months ago. Around a third felt this was mainly the result of Westminster actions. 25% blamed Holyrood and 33% cited some other reason. Robertson went on, despite these figures being from earlier in the year, it is clear the cost of living crisis was starting to impact family finances and alarm bells were ringing about the economy. The Scottish Government is working tirelessly to provide support to those who need it most. We are increasing the Scottish child payment to £25 per week and extending it to eligible children under 16 in the coming weeks. Helping thousands of additional families this winter, we are continuing to urge the UK Government to take all the necessary steps to support the most vulnerable through this profoundly difficult time. The publication of the data comes weeks after the British Social Attitudes Survey found support for Scottish independence at an all-time high. It is the first time the annual report has found majority support for independence at 52%, with the fieldwork carried out in 2021. The same data shows support for Northern Ireland remaining in the UK has also slipped to just 49%. Polling expert John Curtis said the UK government now faces a particularly formidable challenge in bringing the union together. The article was by Jane McLeod. This is from The National on Monday, 31st of October 2022. This is from the news section. UK government sees huge boost in tax take as North Sea revenues up to nearly £8 billion. This article is by Gregor Young. Tax revenues from North Sea oil and gas have increased to almost £8 billion in the first nine months of 2022, according to research. Figures from the Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce show the UK government's tax take has increased nearly sevenfold from the same period last year. A windfall tax for the energy sector was introduced in May, which brought in a 25% surcharge on extraordinary profits from energy companies. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is understood to be considering raising this further 
in order to improve the UK's fiscal position. The Chamber of Commerce analysed tax receipt data from between January and September this year, finding that offshore companies paid £7.9 billion in tax. This would be a 692% increase on the same period in 2021. Ryan Crichton, Policy Director at the Chamber of Commerce, said North Sea companies are contributing enormously to the financial help being offered to businesses and families, while at the same time working tirelessly to increase the UK's domestic energy production to keep the lights on this winter. The suggestion that their reward for this should be a second windfall tax is, frankly, outrageous. The case for a windfall tax on excess profits in the energy sector was always that the extra revenue wasn't planned for and was a consequence of the war in Ukraine. However, that same conflict has sent inflation soaring in the UK, which in turn has driven up interest rates and therefore the cost of our mortgages. So, you could make the exact same case for a windfall on bank profits. The article was by Gregor Young. From the National, Monday the 31st of October 2022, from the comment section, Diary. Scottish Influencer Awards in Glasgow, a pleasant surprise meeting social media stars. By Kevin McKenna, an article first published on the 30th of October. To Glasgow's swanky Radisson Red Hotel last Sunday for the inaugural Scottish Influencers Awards. I'm there to write a feature and, for perhaps the first time in my professional life, I don't know quite what to expect. The world of social media influencers has always seemed, to many of us in the mainstream media, an ephemeral place where the demi-monde of youth culture gathered to exchange beauty and lifestyle tips in a language not quite understood by anyone over the age of 30. My ignorance, though, is soon laid bare when it quickly becomes apparent that these people are whip-smart and possessed of an old-fashioned work ethic and a desire to thrive using their natural ability to communicate and innovate. I'm soon introduced to the Whiskey Sisters, a persuasive double act who have been nominated in the category of Drink Influencer of the Year. They're Inca, Larissa Kimaki and Jennifer Rose, who promote the joys and culture of Scotch whisky in ways you might normally not normally associate with traditional black brands. They've produced a video to accompany their podcast, which has been inspired by the cult vampire flick The Lost Boys. If there was an award for most memorable marketing slogan, these two young women would have what would have won it. Sleep all day, party all night, never grow old. It's fun to be a drampire. Inca is from Finland, and her inherited love of whiskey from her dad, which she also learned about the history and culture of Scotland. Whiskey is such a cool drink, she says, and of course it plays a big part in Scotland's heritage, but it's also been embraced by young people all over the world because it conveys quality and a sense of permanence and excitement at the same time. We just want to celebrate that. It occurs to me that the disdain of traditional media professionals for blogs and podcasts is rooted in jealousy as well as ignorance. The rules that govern how it's been done in newspapers and television news are stretched and recast in the blogosphere and thus encourage you to take a few more risks. The traditional media in Scotland and across the UK for far too long was a closed shop to all but a narrow and anointed straight white male elite who set the agenda. Even now in Scotland, you struggle to see if anyone of colour operating in the Scottish media. Yet, third generation from children from an Asian family background thrive in other sectors such as medicine, technology and engineering. Not very long ago, the only way in which readers could respond to the content of newspapers was via a letters page, 
normally edited by an elderly journalist nearing retirement and reserved to be correspondence with letters after their name who began their sentences with It behoves me. Of course, there is still a wild west and untamed element to social media platforms, but it allows our customers a platform in which they can contact those of us who are paid to do this for a living. The language and the sentiments can occasionally be a bit lively and intense, but some of my colleagues who take offence to this do so with the benefit of a university education and the privilege that comes from having much greater access to government and legislators. One popular political website some years ago posted an article that carried the headline, We Need to Talk About Kevin. It then proceeded elegantly to spank my sorry arse for my then views about Scottish independence. It was all quite glorious, really and very well written, and besides, the author was making a reasonable point. Sometimes I think that we in this traditional media need to chill a little about the gnarly views of some of our readers. It's good for the soul and reminds us that occasionally we in the mainstream, mainstream have a tendency to disappear up our own fundaments as we make our profound Twitter proclamations. Right now, the best writing about Scottish football is to be found largely on fan websites and platforms such as the Herald's Celtic Way and the Rangers Review. These terrains are home to a level of sophistication, analysis and writing well beyond the tired, cliched, risk-free content that most of our daily newspapers are still churning out. Back at the Radisson Red, I experienced a moment of deep joy in the reception area. At the entrance to the bar and dining area, there's a display featuring quotes by arts and entertainment stars. Music was my first love, and it will be my last. John Miles, I good. Beer, the best damn drink in the world. Jack Nicholson, no bother Jack, you big dafty. She's a belter, better than the rest. Jerry Cinnamon, get right in there, Jerry boy. And that was a comment piece by Kevin McKenna. From the National, Monday the 31st of October 2022, from the Culture section, back in the day, Scottish discoveries that still brighten our day hundreds of years on, an article first published on the 30th of October by Hamish McPherson. It was 250 years ago today that a Scottish gardener stepped off a ship at Cape Town, South Africa, and began to write his name into the history of botany as one of the greatest plant hunters who ever lived. Francis Masson is one of those many unsung heroes in Scottish history, whose lifetime of immense achievement is all but forgotten in his native land. Born in Aberdeen in 1741, we know very little about Masson's early life, but he became an apprentice gardener in his teens and, with the North East, a centre of gardening expertise, he, got, he joined the gardener's Exodus South. Robert Burns' father, William Burns, was one such gardener. Masson was just 19 when he gained the post of undergardener at the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew, recently founded by Princess Augusta, the mother of King George III. Masson developed his skills under the director, Sir Joseph Banks, and, in 1772, he was sent by Banks to join Captain James Cook on board HMS Resolution. He was the first official plant hunter sent out from Kew, and, on October 30th, 1772, Mason left the ship at Cape Town and headed in- inland, accompanied by the Swedish botanist Carol Peter Thunberg. Masson's first impression of the continent were mixed, to say the least. The country is encompassed on all sides with very high mountains, almost perpendicular, consisting of bare rocks without the least appearance of vegetation, and, upon the whole, has a most melancholy effect on the mind. He and his companion made their way into the veldt and the Blue Mountains, and, on the way, 
Thunberg survived a fall into a deep hippopotamus pit. The conditions were most dreadful. Masson wrote that they climbed many dreadful precipices until we arrived at dark and gloomy woods with trees 80 to 100 feet high interspersed with climbing shrubs of various kinds. Trees were often growing out of perpendicular rock and among these, the water sometimes fell in cascades over rock 200 feet perpendicular with an awful noise. I endured the day with much fatigue in the sequestered and unfrequented woods with a mixture of horror and admiration. For all its privations, the three journeys into the interior he made over the nearly three years proved immensely successful for Masson. He identified or collected more than 1,400 species which were unknown outside of Africa. Incredibly, he managed to get more than 400 species of living plants back to Kew, including irises, gladioli and the stunning bird of paradise flower, which is named Strelitzia regeniana in order of King George III's Queen, Charlotte of Mecklenburg Strelitz. It remains a popular greenhouse plant even now. By the conclusion of his stay in what is now Western Cape Province, Masson had been convinced by the evidence of his own eyes of the magnificence of the flora, writing, The whole country affords a fine field for botany, being enamelled with the greatest number of flowers I ever saw, of exquisite fragrance and beauty. Returning home in 1775, Masson wrote up an account of his journeys, which was published the following year in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society as an account of three journeys from Cape Town into the southern parts of Africa, undertaken for the discovery of new plants towards the improvements of the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew. The account proved a sensation, and his collection of plants and flowers even more so. Masson single-handedly began the case for Cape flowers which set the country in the latter quarter of the 18th century. No respectable home was without at least one Cape flower. His fellow botanist, Sir James Edward Smith, wrote admiringly, Now every garret and cottage window is filled with numerous species of the beautiful tribe, and every greenhouse glows with the innumerable bulbous plants and splendid heaths of the Cape. For all these, we are principally indebted to Mr. Masson, besides a multitude of rarities. Banks was astonished at the huge boost to Kew's reputation which Masson had earned, and he wasted no time in certain Masson on another plant hunting expedition to the Canary Islands, Madeira, the Azores, and across the Atlantic to the Antilles archipelago and other islands in the Caribbean. He managed to get some new species home to Kew, but this trip ended in a disaster. At Grenada in July 1779, he was captured by French forces, having fought in the trenches against them. The delay in getting released saw his plant collection deteriorate, only for it to be destroyed by a hurricane at St Lucia. Masson returned to Kew, but soon tired of the gardening life, begging Director Banks to be allowed to go plant hunting again. War with France made travel difficult, but he did manage to reach Portugal and North Africa and find, an, find new species there. In 1785, he was able to return to his beloved Southern Africa, but times had changed. The Dutch authorities, now in charge of the province, were afraid that the Scot might be a spy and limited his access to the interior. Masson was nevertheless able to find more new species and send back hundreds of seeds to Kew, which, largely through his efforts, had become recognised as one of the great botanical gardens of Europe. He seemed to have spent some of his ten years there developing his own personal garden, which is said to be the finest in the continent. He came back to Kew in 1795 and was given a year off by the king, but Masson was in planning an expedition to North America. In 1797 he set sail, only to be captured by a French privateer. 
He was expecting to be killed, but instead was sent to Baltimore aboard a German ship. Ever resourceful, Masson was able to get his expedition going again, and though his primary aim of finding new species was largely a failure, he did collect plants and seeds for seven years. He was in Canada doing his work when he took ill and died in Montreal on December 23, 1805. The genus Massonia is named after him, but his real legacy can be found in plant pots to this day. And that article was by Hamish McPherson. From the National, Tuesday the 1st of November 2022, from the politics section, Scottish Lib Dems suspend Councillor Aileen Polson over an electoral fraud charge. Report by Hamish Morrison. The Lib Dems have suspended one of their councillors after she was charged with electoral fraud. Aileen Polson, a Lib Dem councillor in Eastern Bartonshire, was arrested and charged along with her husband Andrew, who was the former leader of the local authority. A Scottish Lib Dem spokesperson confirmed Aileen had been suspended from the party. The Sunday Times, which originally broke the story, said both had been charged after allegedly pretending they lived in the council area while living in Glasgow. They are due to appear at a later date which is yet to be confirmed, police added. A spokesperson for Police Scotland said, A 52-year-old man and a 38-year-old woman have been arrested and charged in connection with the Representation of the People Act 1983 on Thursday, October 6, 2022. They are due to appear in court at a later date. Andrew, a former member of the Scottish Conservatives, co-led the council with Lib Dem councillor Vaughan Moody from 2018 to 2022, taking over after an SNP minority administration collapsed in 2012. And that report was by Hamish Morrison. From the National, Tuesday the 1st of November 2022, from the politics section, Suella Braverman's anti-immigrant stance is trashing PM's pleas for compassionate conservatism, critics say. Report by Hamish Morrison. The Home Secretary's hardline stance on immigration and inflammatory comments about migrants have seen her branded Enoch Braverman as disquiet amongst her Tory colleagues grew. Suella Braverman defiantly faced down her critics in the Commons on Monday as she was grilled over her failure to tackle an overcrowding crisis at a campus for asylum seekers in England as she compared asylum seekers arriving in Britain to an invasion. It came just a day after a white suicide bomber threw petrol bombs at an immigration centre in Dover before taking his own life. Police have said they are not treating the incident as terrorism related. Liz Truss sacked her from the position last month as one of her final acts as Prime Minister, but Braverman was reappointed by Rishi Sunak just under a week later. Braverman denies reports she had ignored legal advice to secure more accommodation for asylum seekers, despite warnings that a temporary holding centre at Manston and Kent is dangerously overcrowded. Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick said reports of outbreaks of diphtheria, MRSA and scabies at the camp were not correct. He told BBC Breakfast there have been four cases of diphtheria in a population of around 4,000, but those are all individuals who came into the site with that condition. They didn't pick it up here as far as we're aware. They've been isolated and they've been treated appropriately. But that's not to say that I'm content with the condition of the site. I'm not. The SNP have said her incendiary comments about asylum seekers make a mockery of Sunak's ostensible comment, commitment to compassionate conservatism. Political reports, one former minister had compared her to the notorious anti-immigration MP Enoch Powell, 
infamous for his Rivers of Buzz speech in which he warned and, bra- warned and branded her Enoch Braverman. The site reports that unnamed Tory questions whether Enoch Braverman is a compassionate conservatism that will win his elections. Number 10 have now said large numbers of people have been taken from Manston to other accommodation to relieve pressure on the overcrowded facility. Stuart MacDonald, the SNP Home Affairs spokesperson, said There's nothing compassionate about comparing vulnerable asylum seekers to an invasion or dreaming of shipping them off to Rwanda. The Home Secretary is a liability and she should never have been reappointed after she was sacked for breaching the ministerial code. Even her own Tory colleagues now openly admit she's completely unfit for office. Rishi Sunak's dodgy background deal with Ms Braverman and his failure to, failure to sack her now will define his premiership. Either he's too weak to act or he shares her appalling views and lacks compassion and integrity. For Scotland, independence is the only escape from the constant crisis of Westminster control and the Tory hostile environment which has repeatedly brought shame in the UK. And that report was by Hamish Morrison. From the National, Tuesday the 1st of November 2022, from the news section, Woodland Trust, Unseasonal Warm Weather is a Threat to Wildlife, by Ross Hunter. There is concern that unseasonal warm weather is causing confusion for the UK's wildlife, with sightings of behaviour more commonly associated with spring being recorded amongst numerous species. The Woodland Trust has warned that with temperatures in some parts of the UK set to reach as high as 23 degrees next week, the natural cycles of certain species may be thrown out of sync. Nature's Calendar, a citizens and science project which records seasonal changes to track the effects of climate change, has had reports of spring-like behaviour from trees and insects over the past few weeks. Dr Kate Lowthwaite, citizens and science manager for Nature's Calendar, said we have had reports of second flowering for horse chestnut trees, new leaves and species like ash, and plenty of active amphibians and butterflies. We would normally expect butterflies and newts to begin into hibernation around now, so it's really interesting to see how the weather seems to be changing these patterns and how wildlife appears to be making the most of the mild autumn weather. The warmer weather later into the year can extend to growing periods for plants and give more foraging time for animals which may give populations a chance to recover from the summer's heatwaves and droughts. However, if the extreme weather witnesses this summer becomes a more regular occurrence, it may disrupt the natural cycles of species such as butterflies. Butterflies rely on a period of dormancy during winter to save energy while food is scarce, and many plants require a spell of cold weather in winter to drive germination in spring. Trees also rely on cold spells to help kill off and stall the spread of pests and diseases. Alicia Ansey, lead policy advocate for tree health and invasive species at the Woodland Trust, said Climate change is likely to lead to a multiple of challenges for our trees and woodlands. As our climate changes over time, our trees are likely to be more stressed, which means they will be more susceptible to the impacts of pests and diseases. Warmer temperatures will likely lead to more pests and diseases being able to thrive in the UK. These species may previously have been unable to survive in the cooler UK but an increase of up to 2 degrees could reverse this. Dr Lethwood added, A changing climate means changing seasons. We already know that spring is arriving an average of 8.4 days earlier each year, but not so much is known about autumn. In order to understand the impact these rising temperatures may have had on the timing of natural events, we need people to record what they are seeing in our local woods, gardens and parks on nature's calendar as soon as they can. 
The Woodland Trust is calling on people to record sightings of changing seasons on Nature Calendar's website. And that report was by Ross Hunter. From the National, Tuesday the 1st of November 2022, from the Sports Section. Andy Murray beaten by Gilles Simon in the first round of the Paris Masters. Andy Murray was stunned by Gilles Simon in the first round of the Paris Masters. The Scot had the upper hand to begin the evening and looked poised for a straightforward victory after taking the opening set. But Frenchman Simon staged a comeback, rallying back from a 5-3 deficit and winning four games in a row to claim the second. And veteran Simon, who is set to retire after this tournament, took the final set to keep his career alive for at least one more match, winning 4-6-7-5-6-3. Murray broke Simon's serve in the second game before finding himself down 40-love in game three. He soon regrouped, spinning a sideline hugging forehand and saving three break points to extend his advantage. Simon cut the deficit, holding Murray to love to make it 4-2, but the Scots replied in kind as the Frenchman was unable to post any points in Game 7. It was 5-3 when Murray began to rattle in front of the vocal home crowd, double faulting for the first time in the set to open the game for Simon, who took full advantage and banked his first break of the match. Simon fended off the first set point with a smash and tried the same shot to stave off the second, but overpowered it to hand Murray the set and another break. Murray was visibly frustrated, hitting his racket on the ground when, all things square at 1-1, his forehand hit the net. Again, Simon capitalised on the mistake to break the Scot serve, but Murray got the break back immediately to level the set before pulling ahead. And it was Murray who had the upper hand at the end of a 24-shot rally, first with an over-the-shoulder shot and then a well-placed forehand flick from the baseline, though the Frenchman ultimately levelled things at three games apiece. Murray won the next and earned a critical break point to make it 5-3 before Simon broke back. The momentum began to swing in the Frenchman's favour, Simon making it 5-5 and going on a 10-point unanswered run en route to breaking Murray for their fourth time, then quickly clinching the set to the roar of the Parisian crowd. Those fans seemed to start getting under Murray's skin as Simon earned the first break of the final set to make it 2-1 and what had once looked like a potential straight set for Murray evolved into a dogged battle. And by the end, for just the third time in 19 meetings, Simon prevailed and will play on in front of an elated home crowd at least once more. From the National, Tuesday the 1st of November 2022, from the Sports Section. Hearts World Cup warm weather training camp confirmed. Hearts will travel to Spain during the World Cup break for a warm weather training camp. The Edinburgh side will return to La Cala Resort on the Costa del Sol, where they spent time during pre-season in the summer. Hearts are due to fly out on November the 30th and will return on December the 7th. Robbie Nielsen told Edinburgh Evening News, We are going back to La Cala. The boys will get some time off and then we will go out there for a week. We hope to get a game organised out there and another game when we come back. It's a good facility with everything we need. 
pretty far out of the way. The pitch is good, the hotel is good and the gym is good. We just feel it will be good to go back there. The boys will be comfortable with it and get a good week's training. The players will be given time off immediately after their league match at home to Livingston on November the 12th. That article was by Ewan Payton. From the National of Monday the 31st of October 2022, from the comment section, Scots Language Board must be a priority for Holyrood, say, activists, by Laura Pollock. A Scots language campaign group is calling on the Scottish Government to use its upcoming Scottish Languages Bill to create a Scots language board. Urvoice, a group consisting of activists from academia, the arts, media and politics, is arguing that the Scottish Government should emulate parts of existing Gaelic policy to put in place a similar public body for Scots. Gaelic currently has Bord na Gaelic, a public agency created in 2006 by the previous administration to secure the status of Gaelic. The board has an annual budget of more than £5 million. Urweiss says that a board comprised of experts and stakeholders would be better placed to create, quotes, a national strategic approach to Scots and insulate the language from changing political circumstances. The bill is currently open to public consultation on the Scottish Government's website. The consultation closes on the 17th of November. Jack Kapener, Urweiss's founder and political officer, said years of work by campaigners had culminated in the Scottish Government consulting on the Scottish Language Bill and... Quotes, this reflects the renaissance that the language is currently undergoing. End of quotation. Kapener added, Now we need to ensure that this bill doesn't just tinker around the edges. Scots need a national strategy to bring the existing bodies under one umbrella and push for a common vision. Only a Scots language board can bring Scots from an afterthought on the fringes of ministerial briefs to the central task of an accountable group of experts. End of quotation. According to the 2011 census, Scots is spoken by around 1.5 million people in Scotland. The language varies by region, with local dialects including Doric, Shetland, Orcadian, Glaswegian and Glas-Galloway-Irish. Scots isn't just an important part of our heritage and history, but fundamental to the everyday lives of so many Scottish people. Protecting and promoting it is about respecting Scots speakers' human right to have their language reflected and represented in the world around them. Urweiss is calling on those with an interest in the future of Scots to respond to the Scottish Government's ongoing consultation and make clear their views on what steps should be taken to promote and protect the language. Kapener urged the public to respond and pointed to the group's resources. He said... The public can visit our website to copy and paste our stock responses for use in the consultation form. 
By adding all our voices together, we can show the Scottish Government that there's an overwhelming appetite for a Scots Language Board. Currently, Scots Language Policy falls under the remit of the Scottish Government's Cabinet Secretary for Education and Schools. The SNP's manifesto for the 2021 Scottish Parliament election committed the party to taking action on Scots following a 2019 SNP conference motion which made it party policy to implement a Scots language board. This article was by Laura Pollock. The National Politics on Wednesday the 2nd of November. Kirk criticises Braverman's deplorable remarks on asylum seekers. An article written by Judith Duffy. Scottish church leaders have condemned Suella Braverman for deplorable comments over an invasion of asylum seekers to the UK. The Home Secretary triggered a huge backlash after she made the remarks in the Commons on Monday, telling MPs the UK government is serious about stopping the invasion of our southern coast. In a statement, the Church of Scotland has condemned the language Ms Braverman used as deplorable and called for the UK government to respond to repeated requests to meet and discuss how to establish a better alternative to asylum accommodation. Ms Braverman is also facing questions over wholly unacceptable conditions at an immigration centre in Kent. The Reverend Karen Hendry, convener of the Church of Scotland Faith Impact Forum, said... We all have a duty to ensure that however vigorous and heartfelt our political positions and ideas, we treat one another with respect and we use arguments which promote and uphold human dignity. Through our support for migrants, refugees and asylum seekers in local communities and through their contribution to our congregations, we recognise and celebrate the gifts we receive when we welcome the stranger. She added... We've called on the UK government to establish better community-based alternatives to asylum accommodation and have repeatedly requested meetings with the UK government to make constructive and practical responses which demonstrate the kindness, generosity and compassion of our members and the wider public. Today I reiterate that call and repeat our request to meet. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister's official spokesperson said he has not asked Rishi Sunak whether it was inappropriate for Miss Braverman to claim there is an invasion of England by migrants crossing the Channel. Asked if Number 10 would describe it as an invasion, Mr Sunak's spokesperson said the Home Secretary was seeking to express the sheer scale of the challenge that faces the country, with people, including a significant proportion of economic migrants, seeking to make this journey. The spokesperson further added that he had not asked the Prime Minister whether he regarded the use of the word invasion by the Home Secretary in the House of Commons on Monday as inappropriate. An article written by Judith Duffy. The National News on Wednesday the 2nd of November. Dundee youths hurl fireworks around the streets in scene from a war-torn nation. An article written by Adam Robertson. Scenes in a Scottish city resembled a war-torn nation after youths hurled fireworks and lit fires in the streets on Monday night. Meanwhile, fireworks have been removed from Asda stores in Dundee after they were thrown at emergency services during a night of disorder. Roads were reportedly blocked and police with riot shields were sent in as trouble flared. 
The Scottish Fire and Rescue Service said it was called to an incident on Bewley Square in the city's Kirkton area at around 5.30pm. Videos posted on social media showed fires being lit on the adjacent Bulgowan Avenue. Drivers were forced to turn back from the fires and a Police Scotland helicopter circled above the area. Some reports said that cars had been damaged as bricks were thrown at them and that people could be seen jumping on vehicles. One woman whose car was hit with a brick told the courier, I was driving at the roundabout at Old Glams near Bulgowan Avenue when this started. Bricks, barriers and fireworks were being thrown at vehicles. The side of our car was damaged while we had our six-year-old daughter in the vehicle. Another car had its windscreen smashed nearby. We called 999 and they said they were aware of what was going on. The leader of Dundee City Council, SNP councillor John Alexander, said that he was disgusted by the reckless behaviour. He posted on Facebook, This isn't just a wee bonfire, blocking roads with bins ablaze, smashing up cars and damaging our schools are scenes that you'd expect to see in an action movie or a war-torn nation. I'm shocked, but more than that, I'm angry. This reckless behaviour endangers lives, with emergency vehicles unable to pass on Bulgawan Avenue, and it costs residents and every taxpayer money. Councillor Daniel Coleman said the conduct was inexcusable. He said, The perpetrators are extremely lucky no one appears to have been hurt. With it being Halloween, children would have been out on the streets, and this could have been a disaster. I hope Police Scotland identify the culprits as quickly as possible and that appropriate action is taken. What happened is simply not on. Public resources are already stretched to their absolute maximum without having to deal with this mindless behaviour. Police Chief Superintendent Phil Davidson said, There is no justification for the behaviour and disorder which was seen in the Kirkton area of Dundee last night. Inquiries are ongoing to identify everyone involved. Throwing fireworks and other items towards emergency services is reckless and dangerous. No one should go to work and expect to be attacked. One officer suffered a minor injury and damage was caused to a school and a number of vehicles. I'd like to reassure the public of Dundee that we remain committed to keeping them safe as we understand Monday night's behaviour must have been really distressing for residents in these areas. We have a range of highly trained public order officers available to policing commanders across Scotland to enhance resources and deal with any issues that arise. Officers will be patrolling the local areas to provide public reassurance. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday the 2nd of November. Jail warning for drone operators near airports. An article issued by the National News Desk. Drone operators are being warned they could be put in prison if they fly in restricted airspace after the remotely piloted craft were spotted near one of Scotland's busiest airports. The unmanned aircraft have been spotted near the flight path for planes coming into Glasgow Airport, which could put aeroplanes at risk when arriving. Inspector David Ferguson of Police Scotland's Aviation Security and Safety Unit warned operators that what may seem like a harmless pastime or hobby could have potentially catastrophic consequences if a drone is flown in a location which poses a threat to an aircraft. And Jonathan Nicholson of the Civil Aviation Authority warned that breaking the rules could see drone operators being prosecuted or even put behind bars. He said, anyone operating a drone must do so responsibly and observe all relevant rules and regulations. 
The rules for flying drones are designed to keep everybody safe. Every airport and airfield is protected by a flight restriction zone where operators can't fly a drone in the airspace without the permission of the airfield operator and air traffic control. Flying a drone or unmarked aircraft within the zone could land the pilot an unlimited fine and up to five years in jail. An article issued by the National News Desk. The National, on Wednesday the 2nd of November. Opinion. Lula's victory in Brazilian election is a win for us all. A column written by Alan Smith. The results of Brazil's election could prove to be a vital turning point in the fight against climate change, as long as the world is not complacent. This week will prove to be a very interesting one politically. As I write, voters are going to the polls in both Denmark and Israel. The former sees voters participate in their second general election since 2015. The latter is holding its fifth in just under four years. All elections are important, and the results in Denmark and Israel will have ramifications for themselves and for their neighbours, but Brazil's presidential election over the weekend might just have been monumental, especially as the world gears up for COP27 in Egypt. While the US had the Tea Party and Trump and the UK had the Leave campaign and Brexit, Brazil has also been dealing with its own dangerous chauvinism and populism in the person of Jair Bolsonaro. The former army captain is very much on the far right of the political spectrum, often espousing sexist and racist views, as well as being vocally against same-sex marriage, drug liberalisation and abortion. In winning the presidency in 2018, he promised to be tough on crime, with ideas such as militarising the police and loosening public gun laws. As president, he sought to make good on his rhetoric while also refusing to do much about the deforestation of the Amazon, which ramped up to frightening levels. It's not for us in the developed world to tell the developing world how to manage their resources, but the destruction of the Amazon rainforest is of global significance and needed a global discussion to balance economic development with the needs of the planet. The run-up to this year's election was no less divisive than his first – Mr Bolsonaro frequently said that electronic voting in Brazil was prone to vote rigging, an allegation wholly unsubstantiated and made without evidence. His rhetoric often inflamed supporters and opponents, leading to high levels of political violence during the campaign. And after the capital riot by President Trump's supporters on January 6, 2020, there remains real concern that Mr Bolsonaro would be prepared to use force to stay in office and the result was close, close enough for bad actors to argue the toss. The left-wing candidate Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, known as Lula, won the second round by a knife edge with 50.9% of the vote to Mr Bolsonaro's 49.1%. The international reaction is always instructive in cases like this, and global leaders and diplomats were quick to praise Lula's victory and state that they looked forward to working with him. Within Brazil, even Mr Bolsonaro's close allies publicly admitted defeat, while electoral officials publicly confirmed Lula's stunning comeback. That being said, there remains some concern that at the time of writing, Mr Bolsonaro had not publicly conceded, while some of his supporters have blocked off roads with their lorries. 
In the face of international pressure and widespread domestic acceptance of the result, we have to hope that Mr Bolsonaro does not follow through on his threats to reject the democratic will of the Brazilian people. Should things proceed as expected, a perhaps naive hope, Lula will be president from January for the third time in his long career. It's a remarkable comeback for a man who was jailed barely four years ago by a Bolsonaro ally with his convictions to be later annulled. He'll have his work cut out for him. Lula has already made a firm commitment to protect the Amazon as well as to try to heal a nation divided by far-right rhetoric. His victory alone could cut deforestation in the Amazon by 89% over the next decade, according to an analysis carried out by Carbon Brief. The challenge, though, is whether he can strengthen Brazil's environmental legislation after four years of hollowing out by the previous regime. This is where the international community can step in, and back to that better conversation that I mentioned earlier. A year on from COP26 in Glasgow, it's important that states don't forget the climate crisis is the single biggest threat to all of us as a species. The global north, which has benefited the most from fossil fuels, has a duty to help developing nations who are the ones most at risk of climate change, but can often also help with the global efforts largely by not repeating our mistakes. Yet at precisely the moment when global leadership is needed, the UK is found wanting. Rishi Sunak, the UK's third Prime Minister this year, has confirmed he will not attend and for good measure is preventing King Charles from attending too. I didn't vote for either of them, but I'd have more confidence in King Charles to advocate genuinely sustainable policy. However, even more staggeringly, it was reported this week that the UK government failed to deliver on its commitment to pay more than $300 million to two major climate funds. Global Britain, time and again, is a blustering, toothless tiger. In contrast, Scotland gets the importance of working with partners around the world, with the First Minister confirming she will attend COP27. The Scottish Government was the first in the world to declare a joint biodiversity and climate crisis, and the first to declare a formal climate crisis at all. We launched the Climate Justice Fund in 2012, the first of its kind. And last year, at COP26, Scotland pledged to treble its financial support for the world's poorest and most vulnerable communities in their efforts to tackle the impacts of climate change. Bold leadership on climate change is needed now more than ever. Lula's victory in Brazil is a victory for all of us and the planet. We'll continue to make the case for climate action and I look forward to an independent Scotland working with like-minded partners to ensure a just transition and a greener future for all. A column written by Alan Smith. The National Politics on Wednesday the 2nd of November. Rishi Sunak U-turns on COP27 decision and will now attend Climate Summit. An article written by Adam Robertson. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has U-turned on his decision not to attend the COP27 climate summit in Egypt. Number 10 initially said Mr Sunak was too busy preparing for the November 17th budget to attend the event, which opens on Sunday. However, the decision was widely criticised by environmentalists. In a post on social media, the Prime Minister said, There is no long-term prosperity without action on climate change. There is no energy security without investing in renewables. 
That's why I will attend COP27 next week to deliver on Glasgow's legacy of building a secure and sustainable future. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon will be at the event alongside many world leaders, including United States President Joe Biden and France's Emmanuel Macron. Boris Johnson also confirmed he would be at the event in Sharm el-Sheikh. On Tuesday, Mr Sunak's official spokesman said significant progress was being made on the financial statement. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday the 2nd of November. Wind Farm Fund saves South Lanarkshire Community Hall from closure. An article written by Gregor Young. A community hall has been saved from closure after being awarded funding from a local wind farm. The Stonehouse Scout and Guide Committee Hall in South Lanarkshire needed essential repair work to enable it to reopen after the pandemic. The committee of volunteers who look after the building feared they might lose it completely as they could not afford the necessary repairs, including a full electrical rewire and the replacement of the building's fire doors. However, Banks Renewables' Kype Muir Wind Farm Community Fund, which was set up to provide financial assistance to community groups and voluntary organisations in the areas surrounding the major wind farm, awarded £7,000 in funding towards the repair of the hall. Tracy Neal, treasurer of the Stonehouse Scout and Guide Hall Committee, said, We're incredibly thankful to have received a grant from the Kype Muir Wind Farm Community Fund, which has proved vital to the hall's survival. With help from a number of other grants and donations from various organisations and members of the community, the hall has now been completely refurbished with a brand new kitchen, new flooring, windows and doors, a boiler and a rejuvenated garden area, as well as being repainted. Now, the 90-year-old building hosts over 240 children from local scout and guide units every week, as well as other sporting and well-being groups. Ms Neil added... As a committee, we're extremely grateful and overwhelmed by the funding. Everyone went above and beyond, and we were able to carry out the essential repairs to not only reopen the hall safely, but to upgrade and maintain it to ensure it remains in the village for many more years to come. Robin Winstanley, External Affairs Manager at Banks Renewable, said, It is causes such as this one that remind us why it's so important to give back to the local community. The transformation of the hall will continue to benefit the local area for years to come, and we're delighted to have played a part in that. An article written by Gregor Young. From the National, Thursday the 3rd of November 2022. From the Politics section, Andrew Bridgen suspended from Commons for breaching lobbying rules. By Steph Braun. A Tory MP has been suspended from Parliament for breaching lobbying rules. For what has been described as a significant litany of errors, North West Leicestershire MP Andrew Bridgen has been suspended for five sitting days. He was found to have breached the MP's Code of Conduct on Registration, Declaration and Paid Lobbying on multiple occasions and in multiple ways by the Common Standards Committee. MPs on the committee insisted he showed a careless and cavalier attitude to the rules and made a completely unacceptable attack upon the integrity of the Standards Commissioner, Catherine Stone. The committee also found Bridgen had an inaccurate entry relating to his advisory role with Cheshire-based forestry firm Muir Plantations for almost two years. MPs heard how the business donated £5,000 to to the North West Leicestershire Conservative Association in 2019, took him on a trip to Ghana the same year 
and gave him a £12,000 a year advisor contract the next year. But he breached rules and paid advocacy by initiating five approaches to ministers or officials which sought to confer a benefit on the firm. He also breached the code by failing to declare his interest in the five meetings or eight emails to ministers. He was recommended for suspension for two days for breaches of two sections of the MP's Code of Conduct and a further three sitting days for the unacceptable attack upon the integrity of the Standards Commissioner. The MP wrote an email to Stone saying, I was distressed to hear on a number of occasions an unsubstantiated rumour that your contract as Parliamentary Standards Commissioner is due to end in the coming months and that there are advanced plans to offer you a peerage, potentially as soon as the Prime Minister's resignation honours list. There is also some suggestion amongst colleagues that those plans are dependent upon arriving at the right outcomes when conducting parliamentary standards investigations. Clearly, my own travels with Number 10 and the former PM have been well documented and obviously a small part of me is naturally concerned to hear such rumours. More importantly, however, you are rightfully renowned for your integrity and decency and no doubt such rumours are only designed to harm your reputation. The Standards Committee said Bridgen's email appears to be an attempt to place wholly inappropriate pressure on the Commissioner, which is completely unacceptable behaviour. And that report was by Steph Braun. From The National, Thursday the 3rd of November 2022, from the politics section, John Swinney warns current NHSP offer is all Scottish Government can afford, by Adam Robertson. Deputy First Minister John Swinney has told NHS workers Fighting for pay increases, he has nowhere else to go to fund an increased offer. NHS unions are currently balloting on strike action and ambulance workers and physiotherapists have already voted for walkouts. However, Swinney told them, I have nowhere else to go to fund pay deals beyond what the government offers. Finding additional cash for public service pay would mean ever more significant consequences, he added and insisted, I am not prepared to do that. His comments came in light of the Scottish Government's Emergency Budget Review on Wednesday, in which he announced a further £650 million of savings. This includes £400 million of spending reprioritisation within the health and social care sector to support a pay offer for staff, with opposition politicians in Holyrood claiming funding for areas such as mental health has been reduced as a result. Swanee told BBC Radio Scotland's Good Morning Scotland programme that, fundamentally, I have got to make sure the health service workers are able to attend their work because they feel well supported by a pay deal. He insisted the pay offer on the table is a very substantial deal, seeing it represents a 7% rise for health staff on average and over 11% for low earners. It is much more than is being offered south of the border and is a very substantial deal, Swinney said. He added the current offer is all, this cost- all the government could afford to put on the table. Swinney who is responsible for finance while Kate Forbes is on maternity leave, was adamant that he had nowhere else to go to fund pay deals beyond what the government offers. He added, The government is unable to fund any more deals because if people are concerned about the gravity of decisions I took and announced yesterday, the next stage of what I would have to free up any more money would have even more significant consequences and I am not prepared to do that. Asked about the prospect of tax rises to fund pay rises for public sector workers, Swinney said that this is of course an option, but changes cannot be made until the next financial year. Decisions on tax will be made after the UK government's autumn statement on November the 17th. Swinney said that the statement will shape the fiscal context and what we are operating 
and shape the tax contents which we are operating and he will reflect carefully on that. And that report was by Adam Robertson. From the National, Thursday the 3rd of November 2022. From the Culture Section, Suitcase of Legendary Scottish Cartoonist Discovered in West Fife Loft by Gregor Young. The old suitcase of one of Scotland's greatest cartoonists has been uncovered in a West Fife loft. The leather suitcase, which looks well travelled, a bit worse for wear, and a little too old-fashioned for today's holidaymakers, was nearly thrown out by Ross and Sam Porter after they discovered it in their Dunfermline home. It was heading for a skip, said Ross, and then we spotted the name engraved in the leather. We didn't know who he was, but we searched it up on the internet and were absolutely amazed to discover who it belonged to. The name was Bud Neal, one of Scotland's greatest cartooners and creator of famous sheriff Loby Dosser. He started at the Glasgow Evening Times in 1944, and Loby and his two-legged horse, Elfie Deldo, debuted in the Peach the newspaper five years later. He was also famous for Wee Wifey cartoons, discussing everything from their reins, it's his teeth, I, Affy Crabbit, like a bear with no fags, to holidays doing the water on Clyde steamers. A famous one featured the ladies irritating a smartly dressed man in a yachting blazer and officer's cap by quizzing him, Yafayat, which Yafayat? At the height of his career, Bud was a megastar earning a massive £1,000 a week in the 1950s and 60s. Loby was a sheriff of Colton Creek in the wild west of Arizona. Glaswegians loved Bud's tales of Loby and his arch enemy, Rank Badgin, and after Bud's death in 1970, his creations achieved cult status around the world. Ross and Sam knew none of this when they first found the suitcase, tucked away in a corner of her loft. We have lived in this house for 10 years, said Ross. I was up in the attic recently because we had a bit of a leak and I noticed the suitcase. We'd never seen it before. There was nothing inside but when we looked it over, we noticed the name and wondered if it was worth looking up. We were absolutely amazed to find out Bud Neal was a famous Glasgow cartoonist and known throughout the world. He adds, there's a sticker on it too with the name William Neal and details of a journey he'd taken on a ship called the Laurentia, the Donaldson Atlantic Line, in August 1951. We have no idea how the suitcase ended up in our loft. There is no connection to the house as far as we know. After a story in the press's sister paper, the Glasgow Times, the suitcase has now been reunited with Bud's family. Adam McPhee, whose mother, Nora, is Bud's daughter, read the story about the porter's unexpected find. My mum and I were amazed to read your story about my granddad's case, he said. It's incredible that it should turn up after all these years. We'd like to thank Sam and Ross for very much for finding it, and the Glasgow Times for reuniting us with this memento of my granddad. Adam explains, he used the case during a visit to his cousin in Canada. My mum remembers the bright coloured clothes he brought back for the family. A big contrast to the drab offerings here at the time. Adam says he and his mum were baffled as to how the case ended up in Ross and Sam's house. My granddad and family moved to Dunfermline from Lindsay in the early 1950s, he said. He thought it would be a nice place to bring up my mum and her three brothers. They lived in Halbyth Road where, with his typical sense of humour, he changed the name of the house to Dim View. His studio was in the nearby village of Halbyth. He once held an exhibition at the studio. One day, he decided to close early and put a sign on the window that read, Budgies Repaired Saturdays. And that was a piece by Gregor Young. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre. 
currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.